The following sermon is by a guest speaker at Community Church in Edwardsburg, Michigan. If you've never visited us at Community Church, we invite you to join us at 28647 US 12 West in Edwardsburg. We hope you are encouraged by the following message. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity we have to be here. Thank you for your word and uh, the men and women of the Bible that teach us how to live as you would have us live. I pray that you remove me from the equation and that your words speak true today. I pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so when, when I was in college, I had a lot of different jobs, but one of my jobs was a Christmas tree salesman. Not, not just your average Joe Christmas tree guy who puts it on top of your car. The Christmas tree salesman, we would stand at the door and pretty much ambush you and your family when you would walk in, and we would start asking you questions like, do you want a tree that smells like evergreen or one that smells like citrus? And if you want the citrus, we'll take you over to the con colors. If not, you've got the rest of the trees. Or do you want po- pokey needles that'll hang on your tree for a long time or softer needles? And that would determine whether we took you over to the blue spruce. And then finally, if you were more of a budget tree kind of person, we would take you over to the Douglas firs and show you what was left in the back of everything else. That was my job or one of my jobs. And just like normal salesmen, there were perks to the job. And they basically told us if we sold enough trees, I think it was 30, if we sold 30 trees during our Christmas tree time, they would give us a free tree, which as a college kid and realizing that they had already chopped all these trees down and stuck them on pegs, kind of felt like we were getting gypped on our end of the bargain because those trees were going to die anyway and there's not enough room for it in my dorm room anyway. So that was the deal. And so being somebody who didn't need one, I called my dad who was a pastor at a church on the far end of Pennsylvania and said, is there anybody in the church who needs one? And there was a family who could use one. So I took my Christmas tree and I bundled it up and I stuck it on top of my 1997 Toyota Camry and it looked something kind of like that, and (laughs) strapped it around and threw the doors and tied all it with twine and then shut the door, went and picked up my brother and drove five hours across Pennsylvania with it on top of my Camry because we're college kids and we don't really think through consequences. Um, But while we're doing that, my brother, being the awesome brother that he is, decides that that evening he's tired and he doesn't need to keep me awake because I'm clearly not tired and didn't work, so he falls asleep next to me, and then we get into this rainstorm, and it starts pouring on us, and because the twine didn't wrap under our car, it actually went like through the door, the drip starts going down the line and then falls on my brother, so I guess it would be this side, falls on him, and then I'm like, oh, that was interesting, and then another one runs in front of my head and drip, drip, and so the whole time, he's sitting there getting dripped on, and me being the good brother that I am, I'm like, (laughs) I'm not going to wake him up and tell him he's getting dripped on and hand him a cup or something, I'm just going to let him get dripped on. And so he lays there, he kind of had his coat pulled over him like his nice little blankie, and he was getting dripped on over and over and over again, and so I'm sitting there thinking, all right, he's going to wake up any minute. It's going to be soon. Ten minutes rolls by, nothing happens. Half hour rolls by, nothing happens. An hour down the road, and he's still drip, drip. And these drips are like every two seconds. It's not like a drip every 30 seconds. He is soaked from his shoulder to his hip. There's a big puddle on him. And... About a half or an hour and a half into the trip, or about an hour into the trip, I decided, like, it's, it's no fun anymore. Like, this is boring. He's not waking up, whatever. And so I just start getting distracted. And as soon as I get distracted, about an hour, 15 minutes into it, he jerks out of his seat, sits all the way up, and he's like, why am I wet? And I look over to him and, ha, ah, you know, start laughing because I'm his brother and I don't care that he's wet because he fell asleep on me. Um, but if I wasn't literally buckled into that situation... I would have left it way before an hour. 
I would have just let my brother get wet on his own, and I would have missed out on the fun of him sitting up and being all wet. Today we're talking about God's timing and us having to wait sometimes. And we're going to do that through the life of David, but in order to understand David, we need to understand how the kings of Israel worked. Saul was the first king of Israel, but before him, there was prophets and there was God. He ruled Israel, and the people of Israel started complaining, and they're like, we want a king, we want a king, and God's like, you have me, you have my prophets, you don't need a king, and they're like, no, we want a king. Everybody else has a king, and so God caves, he tells his prophet Samuel to go and anoint a king. He anoints Saul. Saul's the perfect image of what you would think a king would be. He's tall, he's strong, he anoints him. Saul instantly becomes king over Israel. Saul rules for a little while, and then God gives Saul a command to go and fight the Amaleks, and... Saul goes. He fights them, and he was supposed to wipe everything out. All the people, all the animals, their buildings, all of it. Wipe it all out. He goes. He wins the battle, but then he decides, well, I know better than God, and God doesn't want me to do what I'm told. He wants sacrifices. So he brings the animals back with him to sacrifice to God instead of listening to God. And uh, Samuel comes to Saul and basically says, hey, why did you do that? God told you to wipe all that stuff out from the Amaleks. And why did you bring these animals back? And because he didn't obey, Saul loses favor in God's eyes. And so God tells Samuel, go and anoint a new king. Go to Jesse's house in the town of Bethlehem. He has eight sons. He doesn't tell me he has eight, but he has eight sons. Go and one of his sons, I will tell you, will be the next king. He goes through all his sons and the way it kind of reads is like Jesse forgot he has an eighth son that's out watching the sheep. He gets through all the seven. He's the same as like, none of these are the son. Don't you have one more? And he's like, oh, yeah, I do. I have, I have David. He's out in the field. So they bring David in. They anoint David. But he doesn't become king instantly. Saul is still king. Saul is still God's anointed king. So unlike Saul, anoint king, David's anoint wait. And this is where we pick up in our story. So, so David anoints, actually becomes a musician in Saul's kingdom or in his palace because Saul starts kind of falling off the deep end and has some anger issues and he becomes a musician and then our story of David and Goliath happens there um, which you guys all know that David goes he tries on Saul's armor which is way too big and then ends up slaying Goliath and then because he slays Goliath he kind of starts doing other awesome things because God's with him and when God's with you awesome things happen and so David starts having these other awesome things happen and the people of Israel like David more than Saul they start singing a song that Saul has slain his thousands but David has slain his ten thousands and so Saul doesn't like this he actually on several different occasions tries to kill David uh, one of the times he's playing for him, playing music, and he chucks a spear at him. He sent an assassin disguised as a messenger, and his wife is able to like distract the messenger while David hops out the window. All of this happens before David's king. When he was anointed, most historians believe he was somewhere between 10 and 20 years old. So we're going to split it right down the different, or right down the middle. We'll call it 15. So he's 15 years old. Are there any 15-year-olds in here? Any of you? No, no 15. Any 14-year-olds? Really? Do we not have any teens in this room? All right. How old are you? 13. Close enough. We'll add two years to you. You're now 15. Um, David was 15. He gets anointed. Imagine if you just got told you're the next president of the United States. Pretty cool. However, we would know, one, that that's illegal, and two, that it would only be a maximum of four years. If it had just happened four years, you get to be president. In our case, it'd be less than that right now. 
David has an indefinite amount of time. He says, you're the next king of Israel, but the other one's still alive. You don't get to take over for him until he dies. It's more like you're the next Supreme Court justice would be a better way of describing it. David gets that message at 15 and then has to wait, and he gets to be a hero, but then Saul starts getting angry at him, and he actually goes on the run. And while David is on the run, he writes Psalms 27, and in Psalms 27, verses 7 and 8, he says, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. So our first takeaway, our first idea that we have from our Life of David story here is that when you're waiting, so 15, I'm supposed to be king, now I'm on the run for my life from the actual king, our first takeaway is that we need to talk to God. We need to pray. We need to ask for his, uh, the, his help and his comfort. In 1 Peter 5, the, the verse, cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. That doesn't mean cast your anxieties on God and all of a sudden your anxieties are just poof, magic, they're gone. But what it does mean is that we have a God who cares and wants to hear your anxieties, wants to hear the things you're wrestling with, whether it's waiting he wants to be there with you. David, then, this is actually the meat of our story, and we're going to read here in 1 Samuel. But David, on the run, runs to a place called En Gedi. And we pick up in 1 Samuel 24, where, where David's on the run in a place called En Gedi. It says, when Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat rocks. I'm going to pause there for a second just to give you an idea here. David had roughly 400 men. Saul decides to take 1,000. If you were an army, you'd probably like those odds. You have a little better than 2 to 1. You should be able to beat them. Saul thinks he's in this place called Wild Goat Rocks, which is part of the Engedi, and I'll show you a map here in a second, but it's more rural. So it would be like me thinking he was in Vandalia, and David is actually more like hiding in Edwardsburg. So there's more people, more things around, but he's still part of the Engedi. To give you an idea, Saul was up in Jerusalem. The Engedi is located just west of the Dead Sea, kind of southeast of Jerusalem, and they, they look like this some caves. So you have a nice little mountain, some cave holes poked in it, or some pretty ones with, with some rivers and stuff. There is an Engedi River that runs through that area. David didn't choose this on accident. David chose it because caves make really good hiding places and good shelter. David also chose it because there's water in the wilderness. And when you're in a desert area, having water is the difference between life and death. And he also chose it because of the water. There would be lots of wild game and things like that in the area that he could hunt and have food for his 400 men. So this choice by David wasn't like, run, whichever way works. It was run, David thinking strategically, let's run here. Good, you with me? Kids, you still with me? Yeah, good. All right, so this is what happened. Saul is on his way there. He hasn't made it to the wild goat parts yet. That's wild. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave and Saul went in to relieve himself. That means exactly what you think. He went in to use the restroom. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, here is the day which the Lord has said to you. Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. 
Then David arose stealthily and cut off the corner of Saul's robe. So there's a few takeaways from this. One, David has about 400 people. They're in what's considered or the sheepfold area. So there was shepherds in this area. And those shepherds sometimes would take caves and make them bigger, like hew them out, make them smooth, so they could keep their sheep in there. Or they would use them kind of like storage and things like that for their shepherding. Saul comes along not thinking David would be hiding in a place where there's people around, that he'd be hiding more in a wild area, and he thinks, I'm the king, and I want some privacy while I go to the bathroom. And so he goes in there. And now I imagine our bathrooms are located over there. If you went in and you used our restroom, and then after locking yourself in the stall, you go, you hop out, and then you realize there was 400 people hiding behind you, you probably would never use our restroom again. Just a guess, I personally would stay as far away from the bathroom in itself, because that's weird. But that's what Saul does. He goes in there, and David, being apparently a ninja, sneaks up behind Saul and cuts off a corner of his rope. Once that happens, David goes back to his men, and David instantly starts feeling guilty, which is kind of weird. His men were telling him to kill him. David didn't decide to kill him. He actually decides just to slice the corner of the robe off. And David says this to his men. And afterwards, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid it that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. David instantly starts feeling bad because in the middle of his waiting, and actually more than just waiting, being on the run, He knows that Saul is still the Lord's anointed, and it is not his job to remove Saul. That's God's job. God's job is to remove his own anointed, and David is trying to trust in God. And the fact that he even raised his blade enough to cut off a corner of his robe was what David deemed not acceptable. David actually comes out of the cave after Saul's done and says to Saul, Hey, look, I cut off a corner of your robe. I could have killed you. I don't mean you harm. I am not here to kill you. And Saul, in a moment of repentance, actually apologizes to David, realizes that David's not that, and takes his men and leaves because of David's actions. What we can take away from this part of what David's doing, so David's in the middle of running. He first tells us that we should be praying. And then secondly, we can see that even in the midst of our running, we should be taking godly action. I tried to go with T's. I don't know, alliteration. But... The idea being you are acting in a way that is honoring to God. Whether you are kids, you know, you could be waiting for school to be over. It's almost there. Or it could be you're waiting for, you know, to get into middle school or high school or a problem with a friend to resolve or get a girlfriend or get to college. For adults, it could be I'm waiting for that new job or that promotion or this illness to go away or this sin issue that I've been struggling for or with. Whichever thing you might be waiting for, while you are waiting, your actions are still important. A lot of times we like to think of do, 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 and we don't think of what we do while it's kind of that hurry up and wait moment, or that, ugh, I'm not quite there, and I can't quite move on to the next thing. What we do in those moments are still important. Kids, the last week of school, it's really easy to be like, well, school's over, even though it's not. I know as a teacher, I've been a, I was a teacher for the last six years, everybody shuts down in that building for the last week of school. You don't have to. You could be the example of somebody who holds on and, and shows that you're going to drive through to the end. Somebody waiting on a job or a, a promotion, 
you could be disgruntled while you wait for that, or you could wait for that promotion in that job with an attitude that is honoring to God so that when other people see you, they wonder why it's weird. I was talking to our teens uh, last week about that whole idea that we should, honestly, we should be weird to other people because they should be able to see us and think something's different and then want to ask why. And what we do while we wait is one of those opportunities we have to make people ask why. While I was studying through all this, I found a, a perfect illustration or an analogy, and I thought it would be better than me just telling it if I read it to you guys. So I'm going to go ahead and read this, this little analogy. There was a king of a certain country, and he was growing old, and he had, a son, or he had no son to succeed him. He announced to the people that he would choose an heir to the throne from among the young men of the country by a competitive test which would give all an equal chance. One day, uh, on the day he appointed, a great number of young men presented themselves. A certain test was made. And some failed while others passed. Then other tests came, and each time some were rejected until the last only three were left. They were put through a test after test after test, but all seemed equal and able to meet them. So the king announced that, uh, to his heralds that on the next day, the matter would be decided by a foot race. The course was marked off and the, judge were, uh, the judges were at their places and all was ready. Just at that time, a man came up to each of the contestants and said secretly to him, the king is taking special note of you. Do not run when the signal is given until the king gives you a special signal. The three took their places eager for the race. The signal was given, and they, uh, the first bounced forward quickly, and then he hesitated and stopped. Then another sprang forward after him, upon which the first started forward again, and they ran to the goal with all speed. The third stood looking anxiously at the king and at the two runners, murmuring to himself, I can still make it. I can still make it. The king gazed at the runners and gave no heed to the one who was standing still. The waiting man thought to himself, I've been forgotten, and soon realized it would be impossible for him to win the race. He felt that all was lost. The two runners ran at the top speed, reaching the goal together. They were brought back, and all three stood before the king. The first he said, or to the first he said, were you not told not to run until I gave you the signal? Why then did you run? The first man said, I forgot. Of the second, he asked the same question. His reply was, I thought it would be just a moment until you gave the signal, and then I saw the other one running, so I ran as well. And the third, he said, why, do you, why did you not run? And he said, because you did not give me the signal. My son, said the king, I knew that you could run, but I did not know that you could wait. The idea being here, I knew that you could run, or I knew that you could do, but can you wait? And on our case, God might be telling you right now, you need to wait. You need to wait. And in that waiting, even if it's a brief thing, like this man who's in a race where you get to see the answer right away, or if it's a long wait, you can still take godly action. You can make the decision that I'm going to wait in a way that is honoring to God. So, as we move forward, uh, David is still on the run, but on the run, he is he's talking to God. He's taking godly action, and it actually takes 15 years for David to become king, but not 
king over all of Israel. He's kind of like half king. He actually becomes king over just Judah. So that's the yellow portion, not the blue. He was promised king over Israel, not king over Judah. He was promised king over Israel. And Saul and his oldest son has died. There's actually another one of Saul's son who kind of took over the, the upper portion of the kingdom for a little while. It takes another seven and a half years for David to become king over all of Israel, become full king. And that means, for those of you doing math, it was 15 years, 22 and a half years now that David has waited for his promise to happen. So again, you get to be the next president of the United States when I decide. It's kind of what God said. You get to be the next king when I decide. God has made many promises to us as well. He's told us that his spirit is with us. We see that in Ephesians 3. That he'll give us rest. That he'll provide for our needs. He will answer our prayers. We see that in Matthew 4. We have freedom from sin. And he will never leave us. We see that in Hebrews 13. These promises are ones that are true for us. And if you want an interesting Google project, you know, those of you who are almost done with school, type into Google, promises that God's made to us in the New Testament. I just grabbed a handful of them. There's a lot of them. Sometimes it doesn't quite feel like those promises are happening. David, you will be king when I decide. We're promised these things like he will give you rest. But sometimes we feel a little busy or can't stop being busy. Where is this promise of, of rest? We can still cling to those. And David himself said it like this. He said, I believe I shall look on the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. If you ever are reading through the Bible, here's a, a fun Bible study tip. If you see something repeated in a passage, it's important. If you see something repeated in a passage back to back in the same verse, you should stop for a second and really try and take in what's being said. I'm going to read it again because there's two parts to it. But wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. David doesn't say wait for the Lord. Waiting's the easiest part of everything. It takes strength, it takes courage. We all love waiting, right? We love waiting in traffic. We love waiting in line at the grocery store. We love waiting in general, right? Isn't that your favorite? Maybe I have that backwards, I don't know. Um, but we do know that waiting isn't easy. What is easy is while we're waiting to start complaining while we're waiting to start doing something else. I know personally, if I have to wait in line anywhere, it takes about five seconds or less for my phone to come out of my pocket and me to start playing with it. Because we like to do, do, do. We don't always like to slow down and wait. And sometimes, just like our little illustration, that's exactly the test God is giving you, is are you able to wait? And... Ultimately, it comes down to this idea, our last point, that do you have trust or do you have faith in God? David, in our verse prior here, says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. The idea being here, this is written, again, while he's on the run, 
I believe that your promise that I will be king, that good thing, will happen while I'm alive. And then that whole second verse of waiting twice with courage and strength being needed requires that trust. I believe that. And David is not the only example in Scripture that we have of people who wait on the Lord or have had faith in God. In Hebrews chapter 11, there is a a passage that we call the Hall of Faith. To give you an idea what the Hall of Faith is, if you know what baseball or softball, or not softball, let me have a Hall of Fame, um, or football, we have these Hall of Fames, the people who are the best of the best, You know, Tom Brady isn't there yet, but when he retires, he would be there. Eli Manning, those people who are considered the best get put into the Hall of Fame. Well, in Hebrews chapter 11, it doesn't call it the Hall of Faith. It's kind of what we call it as people who study the scriptures. But the Hall of Faith happens, and there is a whole list of people that are part of this Hall of Faith. So, real quick, kids, this is your chance now. I don't want you to get up. But if you are somebody who answers me, this is your chance. You can get an extra thing. If you got your bingo, you can get an extra thing when you come over to Hannah. So cheating, totally fine. If you have a Bible or your parents have a Bible, cheat. I don't care. It's a good thing to look in your Bible. If you can raise your hand and name someone who is listed in the Hall of Faith, you'll get to be one of those people. Go for it. What you got? Moses. Yes. Go for it. Noah, yes. Abraham. Go ahead, man. You got one? No? That's all right. David. Actually, David didn't make the list. Fun facts. Um, Yeah. Joseph. Uh, Yes. Yeah, he is in there. What you got? What? Sarah is in there. Yes. All right, last one. Abraham. Yes, we already said that, but yes, he is in there. Okay, so I'm just going to read for you. This is not everybody. If you read the Hall of Faith, some people get like, uh, hey, this is this person, and here's something that they did to prove their faith. Other people kind of just get their name listed in there. But here's some of the people. We have Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Joseph, Moses, Rahab, Gideon, uh, Barak, Samson, Japheth, David, Samuel. Oh, I was wrong. David is in there. Nice work. All right. Um, I just can't read. Um, But... All of these people are listed in there not because of their awesome things that they accomplished. The Bible doesn't say, well, David became king of Israel and therefore he is in the hall of faith. Or Moses led the people out of Israel. It was more by their faith this happened. And in order for us to understand, if I was going to induct you into the hall of fame for football... It's pretty well understand or understood that you got in there because you're really awesome at football. The people in that have awesome faith, we needed to find. So the first verse in Hebrews chapter 11 is now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not yet seen. This is how faith is desi- defined. So it'd be like good at football or good at baseball or good at basketball. This is the definition of being good at faith. If you have assurance of things hoped for, meaning they haven't happened yet, but you know they're going to. This is where we get the tie into our gospel. We know that Jesus died for us way back when. 
but it hasn't happened yet that we have been raised to heaven with him. We're not there yet. We're here. You're stuck listening to me. We have hope or we have faith that that is going to happen. We So much so that we know. Abraham, that example that a couple of us said, God told him to go. Where? I don't know. I'll give you a family. Okay, but I haven't had any kids yet. I'm 90, and I still don't have any kids yet. Go. I'm sure his wife was kind of like, what now? Um, I can't imagine if I like walked into our home and I was like, Hannah, God said go. Okay, where are we going? Go. Get in the car. Let's go. That would be a little weird. That's what Abraham was commanded to do. His faith is what led him to do that. If he didn't have the faith that God's promises would become true, he wouldn't have went. So we, a lot of times we like to attribute faith to actions. And they do, faith does lead to actions, but it starts with faith. Those actions don't happen if we don't have faith. David doesn't become somebody who, who fights for his whole life in order to become king over Israel if he doesn't believe that God has a plan. He kills Saul in that cave right there if he doesn't trust that God will remove Saul when the time is right. If David had become king at age of 15, he probably would not have been ready to be king. But all of the things that happened in David's life helped him be a better king, helped him lead the people of Israel in a way that was godly. Yes, David made lots of mistakes. He actually reigned for about 33 years, which if you're doing math, that's only 11 years longer than he had to wait to be king. Um, But that was David. And to kind of recap here, while you are waiting, while you're stuck in that, man, I wish the next thing would happen. I wish that next job, I wish school would be over. I wish I had a girlfriend already. Whatever it is, you can hold on to those promises. But our first step, whoop, I don't have any more slides. Never mind. Is to talk to God. Second step is during those times, make sure you take godly action or the things you're doing, you do to bring God glory, not yourself. And then finally, you trust in God and you trust in his promises even if you can't see them happening right now. I'm going to close this with prayer here and then I'm going to go ahead and invite our our worship team up. Please, as you go forward, remember the most important one on there is to have that faith and remember what God's done for you and will be doing for you in the future. God, thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity you gave me to be up here and speak, but I pray that you... Just remove any mistakes or errors or things that I said wrong and that your words just speak true. I pray that you help us to wait and trust and and act in a way that is honoring to you uh, even during the times that are hardest for us to do those things while we're waiting. And I pray this in your name. Amen. Please stand. Today's message was brought to you by a guest speaker at Community Church in Edwardsburg. For more information about the church, you can visit our website edwardsburg.church. You may also contact the church via email, info at edwardsburg.church, or call us at 269-663-2648. Thank you for listening.